0: Hi this is Elliot Fishman and welcome to our latest podcast. And this one I used the title for my RSNA presentation. Uh, NAASCII has a session on RSNA actually over a number of days looking at the coronary arteries. and I did one of those sessions, and I presented a number of cases and I thought I'd share those cases with you. So very straightforward. I'll discuss the case, show you some images, let you think about it, and I'll tell you the best answer. okay? Very simple. A couple of these cases, maybe the first two, I may have shown somewhere else during the past year or two. The last five I know are all great cases. The first two are easiest, and I just wanted to just make a few points. So I said a 55-year-old male with a history of atypical chest pain had a calcium scoring study with select images. And you could see the patient has plaque in the LAD. And in fact, the Atkinson score was 137. So I asked the following question, according to current guidelines, are you required to do a calcium score before performing a CTA, before performing a cardiac CTA? Think about it for a second. Actually, when you survey people, which I even did at the meeting, about half of people are doing a calcium score before a cardiac CTA, we do, and half are not. The reason we do it is not that I can't see calcification with the uh, contrast on board, but because a lot of our referring docs like the calcium score still as a way of strategizing in terms of patient management. But by requirements, you don't have to. So half people do, half don't. One reason potentially not to do it in the future, or even now, is that the dose of CTA is so low that the calcium score almost doubles the dose. Interesting. Okay. Following up that case, based on the image we just saw and an Agasson score of 137, the likelihood of significant stenosis in that patient's LAD was over 50%, 25 to 49%, under 25 or impossible to determine. And this is a very, I won't say tricky question, but it makes you think about what the Agasson score actually tells you. Remember, Agasson score is a way of having an additional risk factor to predict coronary artery disease. but we know with the score of zero, which is a normal score, you still could have uh, stenosis. And we know with a very high score, uh, it would be like almost cement coating a pipe, and you can have a normal classic angiogram. So it's something very much uh, to consider. And so, in fact, the calcium score itself cannot determine the chance of stenosis or what the percent is. I would admit, when you think about it conceptually, the higher the calcium score, the better the likelihood of the patient having stenosis, but there's no good relationship, and so impossible to determine is the correct answer. And I gave a few different quotes. The absence of detectable calcium does not reliably exclude coronary artery disease, and we've particularly seen that in the African-American population. And another article by Kelly making the point that calcium scoring does add prognostic value to standard risk factors and serum markers Uh, But it really doesn't help you in terms of excluding disease per se in the fact that in his series of patients, half the patients who had a normal score, in fact, had some plaque. And in fact, 12 patients had moderate to significant disease. And eight of the patients underwent uh, invasive angiography and had coronary stenting. So again, uh, recognize where things fit in. Okay, let me give you another thing that kind of relates to this a little bit. 62-year-old male who had a typical chest pain and had a calcium scoring done first with a very high score, 1186. And the question I ask, and you can see the calcium here, should you do a CTA in this patient? And it's interesting, when we did a survey and we asked people, do you scan all patients Whatever there's a high score, people would say, typically, if they had a very high score, they wouldn't do a coronary study. As we know, the higher the score, the more difficult it is to grade and evaluate the study and sometimes calcifications are so extensive with blooming artifact it's really a problem but uh, that alone is maybe not the answer and in fact none of us sit there at the scanner doing absolute scores and when we did the study uh, most people said that there were certain scores that they wouldn't scan patients and when we asked the score. Most said 1,000, though some said 600, but then we asked a follow-up question, have you ever canceled a patient? And of course the answer, not to our surprise, was no. So it's important to recognize, and there's a good article by Hecht, that there is no absolute score. They do make the point that the higher the score, the harder it is to do the study. It will take more time. With the newer dual source type scanners, it's less of an issue, but if you're going to have a very high score, make sure you have a experienced physician and not that an inexperienced physician should be doing low score studies but the higher the score the more difficult it is i know some insurance companies have actually thought that if with high scores you have so many indeterminate or um, non-accurate reports or false positive false negatives then perhaps you should not be doing it above a certain score so we'll see where that plays in on this patient you can see what happened there's actually a significant stenosis greater than 80% in the LAD, nicely shown, just past that area of calcification. You see it on the 3D volume rendering. You can see it here on some of the curved planar reconstructions as well. So just a very nice example, this patient was in the cath lab within a couple of hours. So very, very important point to make. Okay, let's look at another case, and this is a great case. 58-year-old, history of progressive shortness of breath. Echo shot a high velocity shunt, felt to be from a arterial source, and CT was done to look for any pathology. And CT is very good if you're looking for potential fistula, and I'll show you this case and think about that little hint. You look at these images, nothing very impressive, some plaque on the patient's left main and LAD that's calcified and also the right coronary, but nothing jumping at me here. But look at this next set of images, and I want to give you a little hint look at the circle there. What's that little dot? Okay, well, that's not much help, but just think about that for a second. Here's a few coronal views, and I'm going to ask you, what is that dot over there? Okay, and let's look a little bit more at that same projection, but put it in 3D, and now take a look at the patient's left main coronary artery as it goes to LAD, but you'll notice there's something going just above it right between what I would call the aorta and pulmonary artery. Okay, let's look at that a little bit closer, including with a 3D image. And look at the patient's pulmonary artery. You can see something sitting on top of the pulmonary artery and I'll show you a few more images. Very nice visualization. Look at that kind of twisty vessel. Very nicely shown. And, um, okay, here's a composite of those images. Somebody me ask you a question. What's the most likely diagnosis? And I'll give you four options here: anomalous left coronary, anomalous right coronary, coronary artery aneurysm, or fistula. So I gave sort of broad categories. And if you think about it, of course, when you're looking, it's those small vessel. It's that vessel. What is it doing? Where is it going? That really is the diagnosis. And of course, you see this. It looks like an aneurysm sitting on top of the pulmonary artery with vessels. And when you see that appearance, you've got to be thinking about a fistula. And so it's a coronary artery fistula. So this patient was evaluated further and was not felt to be a candidate for surgery, and was felt to be a candidate for surgery. The patient, in fact, had two communications at surgery, one from the ramus intermedius, which came up on the left, and uh, this was very long in serpiginous fistula, which is what was showing on the 3D. And there was another which emanated from the left main coronary artery on the right side of the main pulmonary artery, both of which were ligated, and the patient did very nicely. So you can see the 3D was really good. So let me ask you a few more questions. The most common cause of a coronary artery fistula is a congenital, a complication of angioplasty, complication of bypass surgery, or trauma. And the answer is congenital. And we'll explain that a bit more in a moment. Another question, coronary artery uh, is most commonly involved with fistula, which of the following is it? It's kind of interesting, you always wanna say the left coronary artery, because it's the most important vessel, but like many things, including coronary artery aneurysms, it's the right coronary that's most commonly involved. So let me give you some facts. Coronary fistula, it's a communication between the coronary artery and another vascular structure be it artery, vein, or chamber. The most common drainage is to the right ventricle or the right atrium or pulmonary artery, as in this case, but the drainage can be most anywhere coronary sinus, SVC, as well as the left atrium and ventricle. The right coronary artery is the most commonly involved in about two-thirds of cases, and the coronary artery, no surprise, is dilated and tortuous, and most cases are treated with surgery. Patients sometimes are asymptomatic, but typically present with hemodynamic issues ranging from the equivalence of ASD or VSD to myocardial ischemia, and again, um, the key thing is where the draining happens. Now, in terms of the etiology, as I mentioned, congenital is most common, but the other choices I gave you from chest trauma to angioplasty to bypass surgery, complications of cardiac transplantation, all indeed can occur couple other comments with fistulae. It's often an incidental finding on cath or on autopsy. 0.18% was the uh, typical numbers. And again, as I said before, patients can be symptomatic with a range of findings. And CT, in fact, is very good in these patients because 3D mapping works very nicely for visualization of the origin, course, and distal vessel entry site of coronary artery fistulas, uh, as shown in this article by Dodd and Zeno's made the comment as well that volume rendered images as the ones I showed you are particularly helpful for the surgeon uh, to really understand the anatomy. And just one more example, here's a classic case, right? Coronary artery fistula draining into the coronary situs. Just a beautiful, beautiful example. Look at the size of that vessel. All right, you did great. Another case, this is a 55 year old female with a history of coronary artery disease as well as GERD developed chest pain after shoveling snow. Bottom line is, if you're 55, don't shovel snow. She woke at 3 a.m. that morning, chest pain, nausea and diaphoresis. Emergency cath was done, which showed a normal left main, LAD, but circ occlusion. Patient was transferred to Hopkins for further evaluation. And let's take a look at the images. So you look at these images, and you can see the patient's left main and LAD, but you see a really abrupt cutoff in these images and in these images of the circ. But look also more carefully because I'm going to ask you an important question. Okay, look at these images and I'll give you a couple more there. So my question is then, what's the key finding in this case beyond the stenosis of the circumflex? Is it a fistula? Is it an aneurysm? Is it an anomalous vessel or stenosis? Well, when you look at the images, of course, we know the patient does have occlusion of the vessel. It's more than stenosis. But when you look carefully, there's something in that area. Here's the MIP images, but look at it on the standard views. You see that circular structure? That's an aneurysm. And in fact, when you scan further down, there's a second set of aneurysms with calcification. And so the correct answer in this case is coronary artery aneurysm. Just a very, very nice example. And so, the CT findings were very classic. The left main coronary divided into LAD and CERC. The left anterior descending was normal. The CIRC was occluded, but just past the, the vessel, we saw this aneurysm, and in fact, there was a second aneurysm more distal. Very nice example. Again, how do you manage aneurysms? There's many different ways of doing it. In this case, the patient was managed uh, medically. So, I have a few questions to ask you about this case as well. Let me ask you a couple questions. Okay, first question is, what's the most common cause for coronary aneurysms worldwide? I said worldwide. And so the answer is atherosclerosis, Kawasaki's, Takayashi's, congenital. The answer is Kawasaki's disease. If I asked you in the US, it would have been atherosclerosis. Now, what is a coronary artery aneurysm? It's an increase of greater than 50% in diameter of the vessel compared to adjacent segments. So it's at 50 percent, a nice magic number. Article Pam Johnson, most commonly aneurysms involve the right coronary artery, then the LAD, and then CERC. Remember the right coronary? We just said fistulae were more common there as well. And coronary artery aneurysms are uncommon lesions, overall incidence of 1.6 percent, patients image with angio as high as 5 percent. With cardiology aneurysms, the reason you try to be aggressive in management is the complications from thrombosis to embolic phenomena to AV fistula to spasm and rupture. Hemopericardium is a bad sign because it typically means rupture or pending rupture. There are many causes, and I listed them here very nicely for you to look at, from Kawasaki's to atherosclerosis to congenital to Lois Dietz. And again, making the point that some of these are atherosclerotic, others of unusual vascular conditions, and others are or traumatic. And again, remember the thing I told you before, atherosclerotic disease is the answer in the U.S. Kawasaki's is worldwide. Let me tell you a bit about Kawasaki's. Many of you are taking cardiac boards and they always ask these questions. So patients are younger than five, male more commonly than female, more common in Asians, especially Japanese. It's an acute febrile illness, which is also known as mucutaneous lymph node syndrome. There are a number of different findings, but I'm not going to go through that. I'll, let's just stick with the uh, cardiac findings. And just a nice example, 11-year-old male... History of Kawasaki's at age 8 months. Remember, most patients with Kawasaki's will have it below age 2. And coronary artery aneurysms occur in up to 25% of patients treated with aspirin alone or no treatment. And the aneurysms typically develop within about 2 weeks with often a high mortality rate. Very nice example, and I'll zoom up a bit, of an aneurysm at the... uh, takeoff of the CIRC and LAD from the patients left main. Very nice case. Now in Kawasaki's, the aneurysms are often multiple, as in this case. They can be calcified, as in this case, and they can be large. So here's a couple nice views of one of the cases. And with aneurysms, you can see sometimes they're totally occluded. This was initially read as a mass, maybe metastatic to the pericardium or the heart. Look where the right coronary should be. You never see the right coronary. That's a right coronary artery aneurysm. Just a beautiful, beautiful example. In terms of management, medical management is usually the way things go in many cases, anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapy. But if drug therapy fails, then bypass grafts or stent placements are alternative. So, again, non-invasive is usually the way things go. Okay, that's about, well, let's say we're about halfway through. So why don't we just take a break here and then we'll come back and do the rest of the cases after. And with that, see you in a bit.